Well, good morning. This morning, we're on to continue our study of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. And the, type, the title of this message is Paul's First Apostolic Mission, part three. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch to an apostolic work that was authorized by the Holy Spirit who communicated through the leaders of the ecclesia in Antioch, and they, they set out Paul and Barnabas to the work that the Holy Spirit had set them apart to do. The first phase of their work was in Cyprus, which was Barnabas' hometown. Of course, Barnabas was part of the Jewish dispersion. Uh, being a Jew, his home was really Israel, but because of the sin of the Jews, they were dispersed. And so his family ended up in Cyprus, and that's where Barnabas was born and, and raised. And Barnabas, of course, was in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and came to know the Lord and became one of the early followers and one of the first apostles outside the original apostles. So Barnabas was going back home, that is to his uh, home of home of origin in the sense of his birth, but not his real home, which was the, 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 uh, the nation of Israel and the people of God there in, in, Palestine, in Palestine area. The second phase was um, at Antioch and Pisidia. Here they enjoyed some fruit and some persecution, a common combination. In the end, they were driven out of the, the district by jealous Jews who incited opposition against them. Nevertheless, the apostles were driven out and left the disciples full of joy and the Holy Spirit. So interesting how God can work and we can have both persecution and joy. That's the way God works. In chapter 14, now we have the third phase of this journey. And now they've moved on to a different part of Asia. And they've gone to a, t a place called Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Uh, it's in a district called Lyconia. Lyconius means wolfland. Perhaps that describes the, a wolf population that dominated that area. But these three cities are going to give us a new glimpse at what and what it was like back in those days is they're trying to share the message that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Keep in mind that the Jesus is Lord in Christ is the key concept that one must have to properly understand the Old Testament. In Lystra, there is a difference, a shift from what Paul is, uh, and Barnabas and what Peter has experienced up until now. Up until now in the book of Acts, all of the efforts have been centered around the Jewish synagogues or the temple in Jerusalem. But here in Lystra, we have a shift, a shift to a place where apparently biblical literacy is not very high, or at least there were a large number of people there who were biblically illiterate and were not participating in the synagogues. And that means that they were informed by Roman polytheism. Their worldview was, was polytheistic, not informed by Judaism, which was Judaism was informed by scripture. So a very different group of people. Probably Lystra is an example of how we should be relating to people today. We live in a, world, a culture today that's largely biblically illiterate. And so Paul's going to give us a clue about how to deal with biblically illiterate people, how to bring the message of truth to them. And it's going to be probably very surprising and different from what we might expect. After the visit to Lystra, you know, Paul and Barnabas went back 
uh, went on to Derby. There's very little that we know of that visit to Derby. They had, um, it's only a couple of verses that mention it. Uh, all that's known is they shared the message about Jesus being Lord in Christ, and they made many disciples. It doesn't tell us how long they were there. It doesn't tell us how profound the disciples were. It doesn't tell us whether the disciples began the journey as biblically literate or biblically illiterate. Obviously, becoming a disciple as a biblically literate person is far more efficient and effective than a biblically illiterate person because a biblically illiterate person knows nothing of the word, and they've got to just go start learning the word before they can understand hardly anything. But if you're biblically literate and you know that Jesus is Lord in Christ, you're just connecting the dots. You know the Old Testament, and you're just going back and dropping in the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these various prophecies in the Old Testament, and now the Old Testament makes sense in a new way to you. So much easier, much more efficient to be a disciple as a biblically literate person. There's uh, just no no way of knowing exactly what they were dealing with, how long they stayed. All we know is it happened. And it was clear that the objective of Barnabas and Paul was to make disciples. They weren't there to lead crusades. They weren't there to get converts. They weren't there to lead worship events. They were there to make disciples. And sadly, that's not something we get today. Today, we're all about events. We're all about a big splash. We're all about a show, entertainment. And we are very little about making disciples, which is where we're out of step with the word of God. The apostolic work concluded by retracing their steps. After they had finished in Derby, they went back to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch of Pisidia. Now, in all three of those towns, they had been summarily dismissed in some cases, stoned. Paul had been stoned in Lystra, and they thought he was dead, and he wasn't. So he goes back, and they strengthen disciples and appoint elders in each local ecclesia, which that's interesting. The only way you could have an elder is you had to have biblically literate disciples. Otherwise, if you have biblically illiterate disciples, they're not mature enough to be able to be overseers. So that suggests there was a lot of a lot of the people that had come to Christ were biblically literate. And during the return trip, they delivered a startling message that was to frame the way they encouraged the people. The message was nothing like we think it ought to be. It was it was necessary to go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, for most, this is not a refrigerator verse. It's clearly uh, it's clearly one of those very challenging verses that we really don't want to believe. How could this possibly give encouragement? Well, you have to think Christian. You know, if you don't think Christian, you won't see it for what it really is. It is truly encouragement. And Paul and Barnabas did not hold back or refrain. They didn't tickle their ears. They gave them truth. That's the only way to really encourage people is give them truth. Continuing home, they went back from Pisidia, Pamphylia, Pergia, and Italia, and they finally arrived back at Antioch and Syria by boat. And along the way, they continued to share the good news about Jesus with both Lord and Christ. The truth is the key to unlocking the correct understanding of Scripture. The only correct understanding of Scripture is to understand that Jesus was made Lord in Christ by the Heavenly Father. That is the key to Christianity. 
they completed their apostolic mission and they went back to and gave their report. And it says they stayed a considerable time with the disciples in Antioch. We don't know how long they stayed, but we know this. Their stay was preparing them for what was coming next. And what was coming next was the first church council. And that'll be in chapter 15, which we will do the next lesson. So today we want to just go through this text. I'm going to take you through the whole, whole chapter. And I'll just, we'll read it together. I'll make a few comments and then I'll have a, a theological point I want to share with you about um, what we can learn from natural theology. And I'll then have a application that I've titled Follow the Science. So let's, uh, let's enjoy as we read Acts chapter 14. The title of uh, verses 1 through 7, I've given rejection and persecution by the biblically literate in Iconium. So this is the first group of people Paul and Barnabas are going to deal with as biblical literate people. And then the next city, Lystra, he will deal with biblically illiterate people. So let's take a look at how he did this. Verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned. Poison means they, they incited them against Paul and Barnabas. So they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there for a long time. We don't know how long a long time is. We don't have that revelation, but they obviously were there for some time. And they spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified. This is the word marteo, which means witness. It means today, of course, we have the word martyr. That's a derivative of this Greek word, which means someone who's willing to die for some truth or some message. So they testified to the message. And the message is the word of his grace by enabling. And this word enabling is granting. It's not the empowering it's the granting them to do signs and wonders. Signs and wonders were validating the message and the messengers. But the people of the city were divided. Some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. So you have the Jews are stirring up trouble. They're trying to block this because of jealousy. We know that from other texts. Anytime the Jews saw Paul and Barnabas having success, in drawing people to the message of Christ, they became jealous. So it happened here. So they're divided, some siding with the Jews, others with the apostles. This is the first use of the word apostle in reference to people other than the original apostles. The original apostles had a very unique charge. It's given in Acts 1.8, which says that they were to be the witnesses the ones who would testify of the resurrection of Christ. That was their uniqueness. The apostle Paul was not one of them. He was not an eyewitness of the resurrection. He wasn't there during the 50-day period when, when Jesus had resurrected but yet had not ascended. That 50-day period, which in Acts 1, we're told he shared with his apostles about the kingdom of God. And he told them, you are my witnesses of my resurrection and ascension. And that was very important. That empirical evidence validated the reality of the message. It validated the truth that Jesus is, was alive, was crucified, was resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, was indeed Lord and Christ. 
So now we have other people recognized as apostles who were not part of the original ones. Barnabas and Paul are the first two recognized that way. When an attempt was made by both the, the Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it. That is, Paul and Barnabas found out about this 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 attempt that was going to be made against them, and they fled to the Lycaonian towns of Lystra and Derby. Now, Iconium is a Lycaonian town as well. It's just two other towns in the district. And they also apparently spent some time in the surrounding countryside, and there they continued evangelizo. Now, the translation is preaching the gospel, but it doesn't. it's not really what it says. It says evangelizo means to proclaim good news. They continued pr proclaiming good news. They're sharing that Jesus is Lord in Christ and the implications of that. That was their message. Now going on to Lystra. In Lystra, we have now the biblically illiterate people. They have We have one incident here that's recorded and then the, the consequences of that incident and how Paul and Barnabas responded to that, that incident. So this is Acts 14, verses 8 through 19. Reading in verse 8, in Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet. He had never walked and had been lame from birth. He was a cripple from birth. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've had several other incidences like that. Acts 3 is one such incident where a man had been crippled from birth. And so now he's sitting there listening. He listened as Paul spoke. And after looking directly at him, this is Paul. Paul looked directly at him. Now, this is rather startling. Uh, today, when you speak to a large group, you don't normally look directly at anyone. You just are looking kind of out, of, out over the group. You're not catching eye contact with anybody. You're not focusing on anyone. But Paul looks directly at him. He's clearly focusing on him, and he sees something. Seeing that he had faith to be, and the word there is, English word in this translation is healed, but that's not the word. The Greek word is sozo. Sozo means saved, saved from danger, made whole. And of course, it can be used of saved from spiritual danger, saved from physical danger, either one. It also can be talking about saved from the consequences of, an, of, of a malady, like a physical malady, like a crip, being a cripple. So translating it healed is okay, but I think it's important to understand that he uses the word saved. That's what he's looking at. And I think that's a clue. When you're looking at someone, some way or another, you can tell they have faith. I don't know exactly how you tell it, but you discern it some way. If you recognize faith is not a human work, which is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So faith is not a human work. What is faith? Faith is a response to the Holy Spirit in us. So when we are born again by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, the way that someone can manifest that reality is they start expressing faith. The faith responds to the regenerating work of the Spirit. Paul understood this. Clearly, he teaches this later. So he sees faith, when, which means he recognizes the Holy Spirit is already touching that man. 
He's probably already regenerated, and now the Holy Spirit's empowering him to display this faith, and Paul is recognizing that he has been healed spiritually, and now he is going to confirm that reality by declaring healing over him physically. So Paul said in a loud voice, this is interesting, such a loud voice, the word there um, that's translated loud voice, we, uh, we get a word from it called megaphone. Uh, the megaphone <laughs> increases the the someone's voice. If you want to be loudly uh, heard that heard better, then you, you speak into a megaphone and it amplifies your sound. So Paul spoke in a loud voice like in a megaphone. He said, stand up. That's a command, imperative. Stand up. And the word there for up is orthros. We get, you've, you've heard of orthopedic, you know, like, you know, straight, straight bones, orthodontist, straight teeth. Ortho means to upright, stand straight up on your feet. And the man jumped up. The word is leaped. He leaped up. Can you imagine that? This man who had no strength in his legs and his ankles since birth, and all of a sudden he jumped straight up. Now that was a startling scene. Goes on to say, and he began to walk around. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted. And keep in mind, their worldview as biblically illiterate is informed by, by Roman polytheism. So they declare in their own language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now there is reason to believe that in the, the custom, the, the folklore of that culture, that people believe gods could do this. They believed it had happened before. So they believed they were seeing something they had heard about. They had been told about maybe in their families of origin. So here is now the gods coming down in human form. And they immediately labeled Barnabas Zeus. Zeus was a, a Greek name for the Roman god of Jupiter, who was the highest of the Roman gods. And Paul was named Hermes, who that that and the Roman gods was, was the god of the herald. He's the one who's the chief speaker. So the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths. That means a garland. A garland is a symbol of something that's a prized possession, somebody that's won an event. Um, so they're putting these garlands on the bulls to say these are really precious, valuable, important to us, and we're going to sacrifice them to the gods to basically say thank you, to appease the gods, or whatever it is they felt like they were doing by this act. The apostles hear about it. Now, apparently, you know, they were they were not necessarily in the midst of all this, they were on the periphery some way, but they they hear about this and they tear their robes, an act of grief. They're very disturbed about this. They rush into the crowd shouting, people. Now this is, they're using a, the word uh, that can be translated man or, or women. It's a generic term for a person. So they say, people, why are you doing these things? We are people, now he uses a different word. This probably used generically. He used anthropos here. We are people, and then we're men just like you, and we're, we are evangelizo. We're giving you good news. We're giving you news about Jesus is Lord in Christ. That's what we're doing. We're not gods. You know, we're just like you. And so now they, they, they give them a directive. Here's what you need to do. If you're willing to listen to us, turn from these useless things these worthless things. You see, they were 
guilty of doing what everyone by default does, and that is worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Paul talks about this at length in Romans 1 and explains that it, that, that it takes deranged thinking to do that, and when you do that long enough, you'll be turned over to even more deranged thinking. So they're displaying deranged thinking. And what you what do you need to do when you have deranged thinking? You need to repent. Repent means to change your thinking. You need to submit to truth. So he says, turn from these worthless things to the living God. The creation is not the living God. The, the inanimate objects are definitely not living. The animate objects, though they show life, they don't have the creative power. We have a God who's made the heaven the earth, the sea, and everything in them. He is the creator. That's who we worship, the creator. Now, immediately, Paul is going to answer an unasked question. This is a very interesting way to do this. The question would be, in the minds of these people, well, why are we just now hearing about this? This this God that created everything, this is, this is different. This is not... This is not what we've been taught. What about all our ancestors? Well, he says, in past generations, he allowed all the ethnic groups, all the ethnicities to go their own way. Although, that, in other words, he's not letting them off the hook. They're still accountable because he did not leave himself without a witness. The witness back then was that he did good for them. The common grace of extending rain and giving a harvest so they had food and they had times where they of enjoyment. This word joy here in this translation is it's not a good translation. It's it's more like cheer or happiness or gladness, something like that. Joy is generally uh, a Christian virtue that stems from knowing the Lord. Well, these people didn't know the Lord, but they had some times of, of circumstances which were pleasant. So that's what he's trying to say is the Lord gave you pleasant times. He gave you food. He gave you water. He kept you alive. That was his witness. That's the common grace he extended to all to allow you in a fallen state, a rebellious state, a sinful state to survive in his universe. But things have changed. And we're here to tell you about the change. The change is he sent his son and now he is moving us into a new time where life needs to be connected to the sun. We no longer have permission to live and do whatever we want to do and just live in, in common grace. We've got to step into a new level of grace, special grace. So even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing. In other words, it wasn't having much impact on the crowds, but that's what they pointed to them. They're pointing to the crowds to look at creation and recognize there is a creator and Paul and Barnabas are here representing the creator with the special revelation about Jesus. Well, they didn't listen very well. So the Jews took advantage of this. You know, Jews are always looking for some way to disrupt because they represent the spirit of Antichrist. This basically became a foothold for them. And they came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. But he wasn't dead. So moving on here. So this takes us to the end of the chapter here. 
This is the nurturing the disciples and returning home. But first, we see what happened at Antioch. After the disciples gathered around him, he's just been stoned. He's on the ground. He's outside of Antioch. They think he's dead. But he got up, and he went into town with her, which I'm shocked at that. Like, wait a minute. These people just stoned you. If they see you, they're probably going to stone you again. But some way or another, he had grace to do this. But that he didn't he didn't linger there. He left the next day. They went, they went, that is Barnabas and Paul went to Derby. And we know very little about what happened in Derby. After they preached the gospel, Evangelizo, after they declared the good news in that town, and they made many disciples. And that word there, um, the word disciple can be used as a verb or a noun. Here it's used as a verb, which means they were discipling. And we don't know how many um, many are, and we don't know what state they were in. We don't know how long they were there. We don't know any of that. But what we do know that's clear is their agenda was to make disciples. When they get through, they return now. They're going to go back and do a return visit. So maybe this was months. Maybe this was years. It's hard to know. They returned to Lystra, where he had been stoned. Then they returned to Iconium, where they wanted to stone him, and then returned to Antioch, where they mistreated him there. So each of these places he had got been persecuted, but they go back to all of these places looking for the disciples. You see, they focused on the disciples. The disciples are ones the Holy Spirit was working with. They looked for where the Spirit was working. We need to learn to see where the Spirit's working and go work with him. And now he uses the noun form of disciple here. So they were looking for the disciples, and then they parkaleo, encourage them to continue in the faith. That means to be obedient to the faith. Now, faith can be used in one of two ways, either objectively or subjectively. When it's used objectively, it's speaking of the doctrines, the truth of Christianity. When it's used subjectively, it refers to the personal faith of an individual. It's going to be used later in in a sense subjectively, but right now he's using it objectively here, and you can tell by the context, to continue in the faith, the truth that you know that Jesus is Lord in Christ and all that that means. And now he's telling them, here's his word of encouragement, which I mentioned before, but let me just go through it again. It's such a startling word. It's probably, if you were to ask, you know, any, any student of the Bible who didn't know this text by heart, you know, what would be the word of encouragement that Paul might give? Probably almost no one would say this, but this is what Paul said. It is necessary. That is, it is right or proper to go through many hardships. Hardships there, this ellipsis means pressing together, you know, where you are stressed, you are under pressure. Because God is going to use that to transform you, according to James chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 12. That's transforming us so that we are maturing and growing in Christ, which indicates that we are in the process of being saved, the present tense of salvation. We know that there are three tenses of salvation, past, present, future. Regeneration is past, sanctification is present, glorification is future. And this is talking about the present tense. We are going through these hardships to signal that we are, we are in Christ. We belong to the people of God. We're in the kingdom of light. And this is a process of moving forward into the kingdom of God. The full expression of the kingdom is when all resistance 
to the rule of Jesus Christ as Lord, when all of that is absolutely done away with at the end, the full kingdom expression happens. So we're moving into a progressively, both individually, and then the kingdom has been moving into a full expression where there's no contest to the rule and reign of Christ. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed. That is, this is so interesting to think that we have this authority in some way to commit, but we have authority from the Holy Spirit to commit people, to commission people to tasks that God has assigned them to, which is what we should be doing in our churches. You should be commissioning people in the Lord to do what they're called to do. And here he says, this is where he uses the subjective uh, idea of faith here. He says this, when they appointed elders for them in every church and pray for them, they committed them, these disciples, to the Lord whom they had believed in, that this had personal faith in. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And after they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. So they're retracing their steps and going back, going back home. They sailed back to Antioch and there they meet with the brothers to give a report. This is where they had been commended, commissioned to this work. And you'll notice that they completed this work. They had now completed to the, they've been given this work by the grace of God and it's now completed. And finally, verse 27, and after they arrived, they gathered the church together and they announced. And they, it's, it's a very similar word to the word of declaring good news. It's just slightly different. They report, they announce everything that God had done. You see, it was always God doing the work through them, in and through them. And they had opened this door of faith to the Gentiles, the ethnic groups. And they spent a considerable time with the disciples. We don't know how much time, but we know he came back. He had some R&R. He had Sabbath rest, and they rejoiced in that work assignment. So they were commissioned to a specific work assignment, and they completed it, which shows you that in life, we can be commissioned to work assignments and can be completed. That assignment can be completed, and then we'll be given another one. And you're going to see in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are going to have another work assignment to do. So that's coming up in our next lesson. But now I want to just give you some words about, some thoughts about natural theology. Natural theology is a study of the tangible physical universe seeking to understand the nature and purpose of God, that is the creator. It is a study of creation to understand the creator. The Apostle Paul's encounter with the biblically illiterate people of Lystra provided some revelation on natural theology traits that can be learned from the creation about the creator from his creation. Acts 14 verses 8 through 20 is Luke's record of Paul's visit to Lystra. So he's illustrating here in this example that the way you deal with biblically illiterate people is you start with general revelation. That is the revelation of God in creation and move toward special revelation. When you're dealing with biblically literate people, you start with special revelation. So you need to know your audience to know where to start. So let's look at what's, what you could learn from just looking at creation, natural theology. Number one, the creator created everything and it's the single living God. There are not multiple gods as the Romans would contend. All other so-called gods are dead idols and therefore are worthless. 
Number two, you can learn that the universe is under judgment because the people in the universe are in rebellion against God. I think most everybody can see that pretty clearly. Thirdly, you can see the forbearance of God was extended to fallen mankind at the fall. And see, you have to explain that to them. It's, they can't necessarily see that without some biblical explanation. But it's pretty easy to see that, well, we've got a God who is uh, in control of his universe. He could exercise judgment any time, but he chooses not to. Well, that's because he forbears. Forbearance does not mean judgment is eliminated. It just simply means it's, it's postponed for some purpose. And the purpose is for common grace to be manifested so that mankind can survive in God's universe and can seek God and find God. In Acts 17, where we have another situation where Paul dealing with, deals with biblically illiterate people, he expands on this and gives more, more definition to some of these things then. Fallen mankind, next point. Fallen mankind does not know the creator and lives in rebellion against the creator. And the default state of fallen mankind is to worship the creation instead of the creator. That's what happens to all of us. That's what's going on in our culture today. It's what always happens. When people don't have understanding and revelation about the creator, they worship creation. Third, next one. The creator is a jealous being who wants uncontested worship. Therefore, worshiping the creation instead of the creator is idolatry. Idolatry will be judged by the creator. So Paul and Barnabas are explaining all of this. As they look at creation, this is what's going on. The next one, the common ground with biblically illiterate people is creation, general revelation, which should be used to point people to the creator. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. They started with creation and explained creation and pointed them to special revelation. So finally, mankind needs to repent, change his thinking about the creator and his creation, but natural theology is insufficient to facilitate repentance. You have to have special revelation. This is what Paul is getting to here. And it's what he gets to in Acts 17 when he's talking to the people now in Athens. Again, biblically illiterate people. And he goes through the same sequence of thinking at that point. So we have to learn what natural theology does tell us and what it doesn't tell us. What we can learn, what we can't learn, and how to use it in dealing with people who are biblically illiterate. Finally, let me give you a word of application. That is, and I've titled this, Follow the Science. A mantra today is follow the science. This is used specifically in an attempt to persuade people to believe the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the culture commonly accepts science as authoritative. So how would science inform us more generally? Let's think beyond the pandemic and ask what can we learn if we follow the science? So let's consider the four basic laws of physics. These are the four basic forces in the universe, gravity, electricity, and magnetism, the strong force, and the weak force. For the last hundred years, physicists have sought to understand how these basic building blocks of the universe work and why. Much has been learned about how these forces work, but most scientists have no clue. In fact, I would say all scientists have no clue why these forces exist, and the only ones that do have a clue, the exceptions, would be those who believe in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible explains why they exist and how they exist because he created them, and they created them to serve his purpose. 
But the atheists who largely dominate the scientific world have no clue. Another way to frame the why question is a question of origin. From whence have these laws come? Knowing the origin will provide clues to the reason why the forces exist. Most scientists claim to be atheists. They, and that is, we, they, we scientists who are atheists, and I, I, was, I was never one of those, so I shouldn't say we, but the scientists who are deny a creator but have no answer as to why an orderly creation exists. But they, they assume that orderly creation, otherwise they can't do science. But they can't explain why. There are some scientists who are theists, who have an who have answer to the why question. And they understand that the answer is the same as the one the Apostle Paul gave to the first century uh, people of Lystra when he explained the supernatural phenomena they were misinterpreting. Paul explained that there was a creator who made the heaven, the earth, and everything in them, including the laws of physics. The creator was the originator of all, including the miraculous healing in Lystra, and all events served the purpose of the creator to reveal the creator's existence to the people so they may repent of their polytheistic idolatry and turn to the truth of the creator. So it is with the forces of nature. God created them to bear witness to himself. The science points to the creator. And it should command everyone, the creator commands everyone to repent. Therefore, if you follow the science of atheism, you will have no answers for anything. But if you follow the science of Christianity, it will lead you to a creator who's revealed in scripture. There's no other logical conclusion. An orderly universe reflects intentionality and is the mark of an orderly creator. Follow the science takes you to a creator. When you get there, you come to the God of the Bible, who is the creator, and you follow that, you come to Jesus is Lord in Christ. Science, if you follow it, will lead you to Christ. So may we have grace to follow science correctly so we can come to Christ and repent in Jesus' name. Amen.